Welcome to the Get Your Writing Done podcast. I'm Trevor Thrall, author of the 12-Week Year for Writers. If you enjoy today's episode, please submit a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps. And for weekly updates on the podcast and other writing resources, you can subscribe to my newsletter at getyourwritingdone.com. Are great writers born or made? Is your productivity level something fixed? Or can you become a more productive writer over time? If you haven't written a book by age 30, will you ever? Do rejections mean you're a failure? In this podcast, we take another look at the writer's mindset. Our focus today is the importance of a growth mindset. Research shows that adopting a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset plays a huge role in how people live their lives. Thanks to its impact on learning, challenge-seeking, and motivation, adopting a growth mindset leads to greater happiness, life satisfaction, as well as to greater achievement. In this episode, I start by sharing a personal lesson about growth that took me over 20 years to talk about in public, Then I outline the differences between growth and fixed mindsets, talk about why the growth mindset is so crucial for writers, talk about some of the fixed mindset traps out there for writers, and then I'll walk through five strategies for growing your growth mindset. Okay, I'm going to start with a story that I didn't tell anyone outside of my immediate family uh, for at least a couple decades uh, after it happened. And the reason's pretty simple. I was ashamed of it. I was ashamed of what happened. I thought it reflected very poorly on me and my personhood, and I didn't want anyone to know about it. So what exactly was this? (laughs) Well, so as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, uh, I went to uh, graduate school to get a PhD in political science at MIT. Uh, very highly rated uh, department for political science to study the sort of thing I studied. Uh, And as I've shared in a previous podcast, I spent the first couple years while I was taking classes with, you know, varying degrees of intense (laughs) imposter syndrome. Um, I was a little bit younger than most of the people there, uh, hadn't worked in the real world, or especially in any of the sort of government agencies um, that many of my comrades had. So I felt behind the eight ball. It took me a long time to feel like I, I really belonged. Well, the way grad school in political science works, you spend a couple of years taking classes and then you take what they call comprehensive exams. And these are uh, two day long, eight hour exams where you sit and write three monster essay answers um, to very broad questions that are meant to test your depth of knowledge, your breadth of knowledge, analytical thinking uh, in your two major subfields of political science that you've chosen. And um, so, you know, the, the, the big challenge with these exams is that they never tell you what's going to be on them exactly. Your ability to find out what was on previous exams was usually kind of limited because back in my day, they didn't have a handy data set of these to give you. They were they were torn about whether to give students these things. They, they kind of liked all the mystique around these exams. Um, and they didn't publish a rubric. They would never tell you exactly what they were looking for or what anyone did wrong uh, or needed to do right to pass them. Um, and the reading list for these exams was numbered in the hundreds of articles and books. It wasn't just what you'd studied in class. It went well beyond that. So as you can imagine, these exams provoke a lot of stress, anxiety, panic even among grad students. And, and their, their purpose is in part to do that, to press you to study as hard as possible, to become a master of your, of your domain. And then when you pass the exams, you're allowed to write a dissertation. 
so so when when I was nearing the end of my second year of courses, um, me and a, several other classmates banded together in a study group and started studying and and all that good stuff, and um, and then um, and the plan was to take the exam the following fall, and um, the only little twist in my plan was that I instead of spending the summer uh, studying and then coming back and taking the exam in late August when everyone else in my little group was planning to do it, um, I, I went back to Michigan to get married. And I spent the summer not studying quite so much as I had been. Um, not none, um, but not as much. You know, I was by the pool with my wife and we were, you know, writing our vows and planning, you know, what to have for dinner at the wedding and all that sort of stuff. Um, got married in July, yeah, and then traveled back to Massachusetts for the school semester. I didn't take the exam immediately in August, but I, I took it like, I don't know, a month and a half later, something like that. Um, and uh, so so you take the written exam and then a week later, um, you have to do a oral exam to follow that up and they kind of ask you questions and so on and then they tell you if you passed or failed. And so they don't tell you anything about the written exam till you, till you, till you get to the oral exam. And I walked into the oral exam, nervous as you can imagine. I mean, I was afraid of all these professors on a good day, you know, much less an exam day. <laughs> I was terrified. Um, but, you know, I thought I did fine on the exam. So I you know, waltz in there going, okay, look, you know, round two. Uh, and I get in and I immediately know something's wrong. I, the air in the room did not feel right. And I got that sinking feeling you get where you know something's about to go very, very wrong. And from the immediate get-go, I, I think the very first sentence uh, that I think my advisor, uh, who was on the exam committee, said was, uh, this was not the exam we were hoping to see. And I knew right then and there I was in big trouble. And we proceeded to have, I don't know, an hour of awkward, unpleasant uh, conversation. And, and at the end of it, they failed me. And, oh my God, I was crushed. I was crushed. I was terrified. Uh, one other thing I didn't tell you about these exams is if you you get one chance to do them over, and if you fail again, they kick you out of the program. Uh, and sometimes they kick you out of the program if you did bad enough the first time. Now, they didn't do that. Um, but I was, you know, I, I, I was thunderstruck. I was crushed. I was shocked. Um, and, yeah, that was, not, it was not, not a great feeling. And even worse, just to put a point on it, as I was walking back from where the exam was to my office, all of my comrades, um, some of whom had just taken the exam and passed it a couple months before, some who were taking it in the following spring and still studying, all came out smiling and laughing to see me and to high five me. Somebody's like literally got a high five in the air and looks at my face and their hand just sort of, you know, lingers there in the air as they realized I'm not about to high five and my face must have looked like I just, somebody just died or something like that. And they're like, oh my God, you know, what happened? And I was like, no, I, I failed. And I can tell you there was that, that little scene is emblazoned still in my memory because it was so painful to fail. And then to have to tell everyone I failed right away was brutal. And so let me just walk you through where I was mentally at that point. Right? My, my first self-defense mechanism here was that I had been, I had been ambushed. Now, you, you got to remember who I am back at this stage of my life, right? I'm a person who's always been good at school. I ace most tests. I 
am usually one of the you know better students in any classroom. I'm I'm at a great department of political science, right? I, I'm thinking I'm all that and a bag of chips, and now I've just been had the rug pulled out from under me, and so I'm in ego defense mode. I am looking for any way to spin this that doesn't involve me being not as smart as I think I am. And so I made all sorts of excuses uh, for myself. Oh, they, I was the only person taking the exam, as it turned out, at that moment. And so I thought they did a, a crappy job just whipping off an exam because the questions didn't, didn't fit the normal questions. And they asked about stuff that you know I, I had no business knowing because it was never in my classes. Or, you know, all these, I told myself all these stories. And then I said, oh, well, you know, I, I was gone for the summer, so, you know, I, it doesn't count. Or, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so at first I, I sort of denied that I had failed in a sense, right? We need a do-over because that was baloney. And my second thought was, I'm a failure. That, that sense of imposter syndrome I was feeling, that was real. Um, I, was, I was ashamed. I, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to tell anyone. I worried that I just wasn't smart enough. This is just proof. And, you know... It was grim, right? It was grim. Um, I did not have a way of looking at this in, that was positive in any any way, shape, or, or form. Um, and and as I've discussed in, in, in a previous uh, podcast, um, the only thing that sort of saved me at this point was that I, I was so desperate to get a, a PhD, and in part I was also desperate to prove that I wasn't the person that that exam said I was. Um, so I, I was sort of, I needed a revenge on that initial exam because it said I wasn't smart. And I wanted to show that I was smart. So I went back, I think I failed on a Thursday, went to my advisor's office first thing Monday morning um, and said, what do I have to do to pass this thing? And he gave me some, some tips. And so I spent the next semester, I, I took two classes with one of the guys who was on the exam committee and I think he was mad because I'd never taken a class with him before. So I said, well, I got to do that. Took two classes with him. Um, I spent every minute I wasn't in class reading and writing practice answers for the kinds of questions that were on the exam. I, I scooped up every question I could find. I wrote answers to every question. I, I put in a lot of work in my panic not to get kicked out of the program. And the result was I took the exam uh, five months later and I, I crushed it. I, uh, it was all smiles. I walked in the oral exam and I could tell it was the opposite of the first time. Everyone was leaning back in their chair. There was a relaxed attitude and everything was smiles. And, and I think we chatted for only 15 minutes. And they said, get out of here and go write a dissertation. And they said, that's what we had been hoping for. And I was, you know, to say I was relieved is probably the vastest understatement you can imagine. But what's really interesting to me is that I didn't fully grasp the real lesson that I had learned until much later. Because as I said, I didn't tell anyone who wasn't there at the time or who wasn't my immediate family, I didn't tell them this story. I didn't, I didn't tell anyone else this for at least 20 years, maybe 25. And it's because I didn't realize what the real lesson of this story was. I thought the lesson was, I'm not as smart as other people who got a PhD. I was not a good student. I was, you know, I was lacking, was the story that I told myself for a long time about that situation. But over time, as I sort of learned more about myself, I learned more about psychology, many other things, what I realized is that the most important lesson that I should have taken from that was that growth was possible. What I really learned was that I could go from not passing a test that was a very hard test 
to passing a test. That was a very hard test. What I didn't do the first time was realize that failure wasn't a sign that I wasn't smart. Instead, what it was, was a sign that I hadn't done the preparation I needed to do. And when I put in the preparation, I passed. I passed very well. And so in the long run, and this is so ironic to me, that the things that are, were the source of my greatest professional and personal shame have wound up being my best stories. The, the, the greatest gifts I can now give to my graduate students are these stories about my failures. Because nowadays, I realize that the, the gift I can give is to point out that if you have a growth mindset and you fail your exams, you don't have to look at them as a personal, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, 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 what do you call it? A, um, it's not a judgment on your intelligence. It's not a judgment of your personhood, your value as a person. It's merely a point-in-time estimate of of the the test that you wrote, right? The or, or maybe the your current ability to write answers to those specific questions. But but when you adopt the growth mindset, you realize that not only is that not anything more than that, but it but it's also data for you. Right? It's an opportunity for you to figure out what didn't you do that you could have done to get a different result. And and when I look back at what I did after I failed, it 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 was in it was exactly what a growth mindset sort of would suggest you to do. Now, the funny thing is I didn't get there that way back then. I got there through panic and, and sort of a desire to prove myself as opposed to a growth mindset where I was actually focused on the learning part. I was too panicked at the time. But now what I see is that the biggest lesson I actually got from that, and this is something that, that buoyed me in future situations, was I am a person who can fail at something and then eventually succeed. And that is a priceless priceless lesson and everyone can do this not just me this is what a growth mindset will give you a growth mindset will tell you that you can use failure setbacks frustrations as data and information that you can learn from and eventually do a better job do whatever it is you want to achieve you can eventually achieve so so this is my kind of <laughs> horror story turned like one of the most important stories about who I think I now am that I have. And again, one of the things that I now tell people as often as I can, because I think it's so important. And, and, and frankly, because of the shame and embarrassment that we feel about these kinds of things, these are very uncommon stories to hear because you know, frankly, a lot of people just aren't willing to share them. So, so I share that to tee up our discussion of, of the growth mindset. And the growth mindset is um, a, a, the brainchild of, of Carol Dweck, a, a researcher, and she, is, um, uh, she has spawned a, just a tremendous um, sort of um, field, subfield of research on, on the importance of mindset to all kinds of behaviors, especially school and business and athletics, just all manner of things. Um, and she defines the growth mindset as the belief that your basic qualities are things you can cultivate through your efforts, your strategies, and help from others. And, and I just think what a powerful statement about the world and about yourself that is. Um, and and what, when she says basic qualities, she's talking about 
intelligence. She's talking about athletic capability. She's talking about musical ability. She's talking about artistic ability. Uh, she's talking about how good you are as a writer, how good you are at math, all sorts of things that many of us think are givens. And in fact, the opposite of a growth mindset, of course, is a fixed mindset. Um, uh, a mindset that leads people to believe that their basic qualities are essentially fixed and cannot be improved over time. And so, you know, if you are trying to get a, a, a handle on this, a quick, a quick quiz uh, might be might be useful. So I'm going to read a couple statements, and then you'll tell me which ones uh, you know you resonate with more closely. All right. So here's the first couple. Uh, the first one is, uh, your writing ability is something very basic about you that you can't change much. And the second uh, is, um, you can learn new things, but you can't really change how good a writer you are. Right? Those are the first two. Uh, and so, you know, noodle on those for a minute. How, how do those feel to you? And then, and then let's, let's have a couple others. Um, the first is, no matter how good a writer you are, you can always improve quite a bit. And the next would be, you can substantially change how good a writer you are. Uh, and if we want to sort of combine productivity, as I often do, with our discussion about writing, you can just substitute the word productivity in there for writing. You know? And you might believe that your productivity is something very basic about you that you can't change much. Uh, or that your productivity, uh, that you can learn new things, but you can't really change how productive you are. Um, on the other hand, you might believe that no matter how productive you are, you can always improve quite a bit, or that you can substantially change how productive you are, right? And, and pretty clearly, you know, just based on the quick definition we've had, um, you can already sense that the, the first couple of statements in each case were, were fixed mindset statements, that, that your writing ability is something fixed about you. It's, you just have a natural talent for writing, or you don't, and there's nothing you can do about it. Similarly, you're either one of those efficient, productive people, or you're not, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a fixed mindset. The growth mindset on the opposite side suggests that you know those things are not fixed, they are changeable, and that you can improve them over the time through your own efforts, through getting help from others, through strategic um, you know, winkling and wangling. Um, and so that is um, a, a, you know, just the most basic of, of differences. Now, you know, as I mentioned, so Carol Dweck has found that the, you know, the which of these mindsets a person has really shapes a lot of their approach to doing all kinds of tasks in life. And so, and so just to flesh out a, a little bit more, people who adopt a growth mindset are much more likely to embrace lifelong learning, to you know, believe that they can become smarter and more capable, better at writing and so on. They're much more likely to put in effort and practice in order to learn and get better at things. They're much more likely to believe that that kind of effort will in fact lead to mastery over time. They're much more likely to see failures as temporary setbacks and as a source of information and potential constructive criticism for getting better at things. People who adopt the growth mindset are also much more likely to embrace challenges because they're not afraid of failure. Instead, they're, they're looking forward to growing and learning. They're also more likely to see other people's success as a source of inspiration 
rather than as a threat. And so those are all really, I mean, if you think about it, those are all pretty darn healthy attitudes to have if you're someone who wants to learn new things, to grow, to improve as a writer, uh, and, to, and to achieve things that you've not yet done, right? On the other hand, research shows that people with a fixed mindset tend to, you know, of course, believe that their intelligence and their capabilities their talents are, are static things. They're sort of you're either good at it or you're not good at it. And especially in things where you're you're good at it, um, it it's ironic. But fixed mindset people often avoid new challenges because they're worried about being exposed as a failure or as not as smart as they think they are or want others to think they are. So you know, for example, in in my case of taking these exams, right, it, it would have been possible for me to want to avoid taking that exam at all in case of failure because I, I was, you know, in, in that era, I had a fixed mindset about my intelligence and I believed that that test was a sign of how smart I was or not. And so, you know, if I hadn't been cocky and young, I might have just avoided that thing altogether. Um, fixed mindset also leads people to avoid and, and or ignore feedback that you get from other people because you don't, you don't want criticism. You're trying to defend your ego against uh, any suggestion that you're not as good at things as you think you are. And so feedback is dangerous. Likewise, you're likelier to feel threatened by other people's success because you see it as a statement about your lack of success. Uh, you're certainly more likely to hide flaws so that others won't judge you. Witness my waiting 20 or more years before being willing to talk about my failure in public because I was worried about getting judged by other people. And then I think one of the most insidious traps that the fixed mindset can lead us into is that because you think talent is the this main or sole sort of input into your output, that your abilities as a writer are fixed or your ability as a you know football player are fixed or a musician, that you don't see effort and practice as worthwhile or as worthwhile as people with a growth mindset because you don't really see yourself as improvable because you are what you are, right? Uh, and so, and, and you know, I'm sort of thinking about the, uh, the movie 21 Drums, Drum Street where, where these guys go back to pretend to be high school students and he, this one guy bullies one of the kids and goes, hey, look at him, he's trying, right? If, if you try and, and, and are judged as not hitting the line, right? It, this is, can be really embarrassing for people. And so that's, that's a fixed mindset is, is when you're afraid of getting called out as having tried and failed, right? That, that's, a, that's a sign that you have a fixed mindset. Um, and viewing feedback as personal criticism, right? When you're unable to learn from feedback because it just gets you so riled up, that's a sign of a fixed mindset as, as well. And so in general, people with a fixed mindset are much more likely to give up earlier when frustration hits because they start getting worried about what it says about them personally, that they're having trouble getting something done. Oh, I must not be good at this. I'm gonna quit before anyone finds out that I was even trying, right? So, so that's kind of um, the, the growth versus fixed mindset. And you know, the importance of, of the growth mindset is, is so vast, it's hard to kind of encapsulate in a single podcast, um, but you know, just, just a quick tally of the things that research shows. You know, first of all, 
people who have a growth mindset just tend to be happier and more satisfied with life and their own uh, activities than people with a fixed mindset. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe it's connected to the sort of gratitude um, mindset in a sense, but but the growth mindset appears to um, link or drive people to be happier with things because they don't define, I think, uh, everything they're doing as a do or die moment. It's all about getting better. It's all about learning. It's all about growing, right? When, when you have a growth mindset, it's the journey, not the destination, right? To borrow an overused phrase. Um, but it's also true that people with a growth mindset tend to be more productive because in general, as you, you, know, you can tell from the, just the preceding conversation, people with a growth mindset are okay taking on new challenges because they're not worried about failures as much. I mean, no one wants to have setbacks and frustrations, but people with a growth mindset are like, yeah, that's part of the game of learning and growing, and I'm not going to let that stop me from continuing to press forward. Whereas people with a fixed mindset get so worried about being judged and about the what failure or frustrations and setbacks say about them personally as a person or as a writer or whatever, that they're not willing to put themselves out there. And so they, they hold back. And so obviously that's not going to be great for productivity or for, you know, new achievements and so on. So when, when, when researchers sort of catalog the mindsets of people who are super high achieving in various fields, it's, it's really no surprise that almost all of them have a growth mindset. Um, not all, but, but most. Um, and, also very interesting, I think, is that people with a growth mindset tend to have healthier relationships with other people because they're not worried about other people as, as threats, right? Other people's success aren't, aren't threatening to them. And also because, um, you know, they can accept feedback and, you know, constructively as opposed to taking it uber personally and getting defensive and so on. And so uh, I think have an easier time collaborating, being parts of communities and groups and so on, which itself as I've talked about before, can help you become a productive, happy person. So I think it's, it's over-determined how important growth is uh, for us as, as writers. And I think, you know, just again to put a point on it, none of us today is the writer that we eventually want to be. And the only way to get to where you're going is to grow, like by definition. And people with a fixed mindset are going to have a lot harder time growing and getting to where they're trying to be if they have to be so concerned all the time about their self-image, their own self-ego sort of defense and so on, if they have to if they have to always get it by talent and getting it right the first time as opposed to being willing to make mistakes and grow and learn from others, um, it's just, boy, that's just a lot harder way to grow. So, you know, for me, since I think, you know, one of the things that you see, it's a universal among writers is that all writers look out and see other writers and go, man, I wish I wrote dialogue like that person. Man, their world building is so incredible. Man, they're, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, we see whatever genre we're in, whether we write fiction, nonfiction, academic, pulp, manga, doesn't matter. There are people out there that you would kill to write like, right? Or who are so productive that you wish you were half as productive as them. Whatever it might be. All of us know that there's another level we might unlock. And to unlock it means growing. And so a growth mindset is just a fundamental part of the writer's mindset, in my opinion. So now, it would, if you could just snap your fingers and have a growth mindset, then it'll all be over and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, and the problem is that, you know, nobody is all growth mindset or all fixed mindset. Uh, we all have 
things where we're growth-minded and things where we're less growth-minded, more fixed. And, you know, like for me, for example, I'm pretty growth-oriented about writing. I'm pretty growth-oriented about like my athletic capability. Like I can juggle. Like I've always been, you know, kind of proud I can juggle. Um, And uh, I'm not a great juggler. Like I, you know, learned how to juggle three balls pretty quick. That was good. I don't know how to, I I know what to do to juggle four. I'm not good at it. Um, But you know what? I have a growth mindset. I think I could juggle four and five even um, in some number of months if I just practiced at it. I have a growth mindset. On the other hand, I'm not as growth oriented around my artistic capability. I'm a doodler. I love doodling in the margins, but I cannot draw a face to save my life. Uh, I cannot draw a realistic, um, you know, scenery, landscape. I'm just terrible, 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 terrible. Um, and I want to say I believe that I could do a lot better. I'm sure I could. No, but I have trouble believing at the same level. So my point is, as a writer, right, you're going to face some areas where it's harder to get rid of that fixed mindset voice than others. So I just wanted to read through a few, a few, um, you know, examples of where you might be running into um, some some of those fixed mindset, uh, you know, narratives and and. Just just because I think none of us um, can really escape all of these. I'd be surprised if any of you listening can't relate to any of these. So just for example, like, you know, my writing group didn't didn't like my new chapter. They had criticisms about, about my new chapter. So now I feel like my book sucks. Or, um, you know, I see this all the time on writing Twitter. You know, I can't get any editors to request my manuscript. Um, I'm feeling like I can't write and I'll never publish a book. Um, people who are thinking about writing, you'll sometimes hear people say, I, I can't write a book. I, I want to, but I'm, I'm afraid to because it might suck or it might never get published. Um, or you hear people say, um, an interesting version of the fixed mindset is thinking you're so good at something you don't need to work on it anymore. Like, well, I'm great at writing dialogue. I, I don't need to work on my dialogue. It's all, you know, and so you're not hearing anyone telling you there might be improvements you might be able to make with your dialogue. Or um, have you ever seen someone in a group, so writer A in, in, in the group uh, or the department um, gets a, a great book contract and you immediately see or see read <laughs> with jealousy um, because uh, that means you're a loser or you're a failure because you don't have a book contract. Um, maybe you have wanted to branch out and start writing in a different genre, but you have held yourself back because you're worried that you might not be any good at it and your effort might be, quote unquote, a failure. Perhaps you've looked at a famous writer and said, well, you know, that person just got born talented, so I'm never gonna be that good. I don't have that talent, right? All of these narratives are, I think, pretty common out there. And they are, they are things that um, are purely, purely, mindset orientations. They are not real observations, right? They are constructs in your head uh, that are keeping you, keeping us from growing, keeping us from healthy approaches to our writing. So, So what are the strategies we can use to fight back? Glad you asked. So let's pivot. Strategies for growing your growth mindset. Right? Now, the very first strategy, I think, is 
you know, and it, I think it, it's a freebie in a sense because just having listened to the podcast to this point, you now know that there is such a thing as a growth mindset compared to a fixed mindset. And just knowing that is just recognizing that you have a choice, that you can change your mindset and that you have a choice. Just knowing there's such a thing as a growth mindset, frankly, is it, it unlocks a door to me. So the first strategy is just to, just to know that there are two ways that you might be thinking about something and that if you find yourself thinking about things from a fixed mindset perspective, that there's a choice. There's another way to view it, right? And that you can choose to see things a different way. So that's step one. Now, if it was that easy, we'd be done. We're not done. So step one. Step two, and this is where the work comes in, is that you need to fight that fixed mindset voice in your head and learn to reframe the narrative. So let me read a few examples from the book where these are also pretty common situations we find ourselves in. And I'm going to sort of read the fixed mindset sort of response that you might have versus a growth mindset response that you might have. So let's imagine that you uh, have a new idea, but you're having trouble getting started or acting on this new idea for a writing project. And a fixed mindset narrative in your head might be saying, ah, I don't know what to do. It's never going to happen. I better just forget about it. Right? Whereas a growth mindset response might be, uh, I'm not sure what to do next, but I'm going to just find a way to take the first couple small steps to get things started, and I'll figure it out from there. Um, maybe you've been having trouble getting your writing done to a schedule. A fixed mindset response, you look at this and you say, ah, I'm just terrible with schedules. I just can't get things done on time. I don't know what to do. A growth mindset response, on the other hand, would be, well, I uh, haven't done that well so far with deadlines, but I can learn to plan better to get things done on time. We all deal with uh, negative reviews and responses, rejections. Um, as, as authors, a fixed mindset response to a negative review or rejection, my work is no good, I'm not good enough to get published, I should probably give up on this project, I shouldn't or I just can't be a writer. A growth mindset response to negative reviews and rejection, on the other hand, my work needs to improve. I can learn from negative reviews and rejections so that next time my work has a better chance at publication. What about tackling a new challenge? Uh, maybe you're thinking about writing a book for the first time. A fixed mindset response might be, ah, I'm worried about rejection, I'm worried about feeling unworthy, looking like a failure, so I'm gonna stick with what I know. Right? A growth mindset, on the other hand, would say, I'm gonna go for it, because stretching to reach new goals is one of the best ways to grow and learn new things. Right? So, learning to reframe those fixed mindset voices through the growth mindset lens is the right once you've said hey okay i've got a choice here's the message i'm hearing you need to then think about how that should look from a growth mindset and i'm going to put links to carol dweck's book and a couple other nice articles so you can get some more examples of how to reframe those narratives in your head. And this is not a once and you're done sort of a thing. Okay, I've, I've had that rejection conversation with myself once. I, I never have to worry about that again. Nope, <laughs> probably not true. If that's one of your triggers, if that's one of your landmines is rejections trigger a lot of that feeling for you, which is a pretty, pretty common thing in my experience for people to have, you're going to need to remind yourself of your growth, you know, mindset mantra every time you get a rejection, right? I, I mean, this just doesn't, some of these things aren't easy, Right? I mean, nothing feels good about it. Right? Having a growth mindset doesn't mean it becomes easy to get rejected or easy to get criticized. 
that, that does not, that's not what it means. It means you can learn from it. It means you don't let it stop you. It doesn't mean it feels great, right? So you're going to still need to work at this. And the goal isn't to ever necessarily totally silence the fixed mindset. But what you're trying to do is change it from being the knee-jerk first response and the one that dominates your actions moving forward. And you're trying to substitute the growth mindset as the foundation for your strategies and your plans. So you're, you're, but you're always going to be doing that work. Now, it will get easier over time, right? And, and the next couple of strategies play into how to do that. So first strategy, just recognize that you can change your mindset, that you have a choice between the fixed and the growth. Second is fight back against that fixed mindset voice, those narratives. The third is resolve to learn as slowly as you need to. Right now, one of the things that uh, is tough as a writer is when you're struggling with something, and you're writing a book for the first time, you're writing a dissertation for the first time, whatever it might be, there are growing pains. Podcasting for the first time, starting a newsletter, doesn't matter what it is, you're gonna stink at it at first. Right? I mean, it's pretty easy to think of this. I think a good analogy is like learning a language, right? No matter how talented you are for languages, you don't, you don't speak fluent French a day after you start. Nope, right? You, are you going to ever learn to be fluent without making mistakes? No, right? So resolve to learn French or writing or podcasting or whatever it might be as slowly as you need to to learn it, right? It's not always going to be fast. It, there's going to be frustrations. There's, it's going to feel crappy and slow. And you, you might just you know, feel really bad about yourself because you're not good at it yet. But just remember this. Everyone feels like that at first, right? Everyone. No one starts doing new things and feels great about how it's going right away, right? Just because at first you want, because you know where you want to be and you know where you are now and it doesn't, doesn't feel good, right? But just remember, that's how everyone feels, right? And resolve to just allow it to be crappy for as long as it needs to be crappy before it starts getting better. Tell yourself it's going to suck at first, but eventually you're going to get there and it won't feel like that forever, right? And if you even just improve 1% a day, 1% a week, right? Eventually you're going to get out of the basement and you're going to be you're going to be living on the first floor, you're going to be living on the second floor sooner than you realize, right? And it'll go a lot easier if you just resolve to learn as slowly as you need to. Just be able to sit with that. Now, strategy four is going to help you do that. And strategy four is to celebrate and honor your mistakes and the messiness of growth and learning, right? I want you to get hyped for your first mistake, for your first rejection, for your first failure. Um, does that sound weird? I, I don't think it should sound weird. In fact, I, I wish that every kid was raised like this, right? Instead of, let me see your homework did you get it all right? Instead of you had to write a paper, you got 100% gold star. I want to see the failures. I want to see the drafts that that stunk. I want to see, I want to hear the French where you accidentally, instead of saying, how do you do? You said, you know, I hate your mother, right? Th those things are the reality, right? And, and I wish every kid got raised in school and by their parents like this. And, and why? Because instead of and I can tell you this as a kid who was always getting good grades and got the gold stars, it's, it's you're walking a tightrope. You, 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 yes, it feels great when people pat you on the back for getting 100%, but what happens when you get a 90%? What happens if, you, for God forbid, you get a 60% or a 50%? All of a sudden, 
it's like the world has flipped upside down and, and you have no value, right? It, no one's honoring the learning. They're just honoring the pretty outcome. But none of us achieves a pretty outcome without hard work, without frustrations, without failures. And if we would only make it okay, if we would honor that process, we would free everyone up, especially kids. We would free everyone up to make whatever mistakes they need to make, to learn at whatever pace they need to learn to get where they're going. That's, that's what it's all about, man. So tell yourself you're going to write down your first three mistakes and share them on Twitter, share them on Insta, share them on Facebook. Let other people exult with you in the messiness of your new learning, right? Those are going to be the funny stories that you can tell later. Those are going to be the gifts you can give others as a social relief when, when they can learn from what's usually hidden, right? Because people don't usually tell these stories. So, so honor your mistakes. Joke about it. Let the universe conspire to help you when you acknowledge that it's hard, right? And eventually, you know, you're not going to make those mistakes anymore. Um, but honor them while you, while you are. And then the last of the strategies is to challenge yourself, right? If we don't challenge ourselves, we're never going to grow. We need to grow. We need to, we need to challenge ourselves to build new muscles, to build new capabilities, new abilities, to scale new heights, whatever it is. And so you need to set stretch goals for yourselves. Uh, you need to push yourself to do things you don't know how to do right now. And, and so to do that, you're going to need to bring those four first strategies with you recognizing that there are two mindsets and that you can choose, uh, fighting back against the fixed mindset voice, resolving to learn as slowly as necessary, honoring, celebrating your mistakes and the messiness of growth. Those are the key tools that will allow you to take on new challenges without worrying that they're going to break you, without worrying that they're going to define you if you fail or have setbacks. Those are the things that are going to let you cobble your way towards the next great thing that you're going to write. And you are. You're going to write great things. Uh, but it's not going to come without struggle and hard work and practice and do-overs and rejections and criticisms. Uh, it's going to come with all those things. But that's okay, right? It's all about the growth. All right. So that's a lot to chew on. So take a week and chew on that. And until we see each other next time, happy writing.